Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case. Today in episode 96, we pull from the Fast Labs vault to hear from one of our favorite guests, Colby Pierce. We recently asked Colby a very simple question. Tell us what you know, Colby, about the pedal stroke. Well, we anticipated an intelligent, albeit relatively short answer. And what Colby gave us, well, that was a monologue of gold and highlights why we're so excited that he'll be launching his own show later this month. Yep, that's right. We're very happy to say that Colby is the newest member of the Fast Labs family. Look for Colby's new show in the coming weeks. Check the Fast Labs website for more details. Thanks again for everyone out there who has sent us questions via email and through our Google voicemail. The email address to contact us in the future is fasttalk at fastlabs.com, and that phone number is 719-800-2112. Let's make you fast. I know that you're going to know a lot about this because this is one of those nerdy subjects that you just love to dig into. The pedal stroke with Colby Pierce. So what are some of the myths about the pedal stroke that uh, you can just smash right here and now? And what are some of the other tips and tricks that you can share with listeners about not mastering, but improving Mm. their pedal stroke to get the most out of that pedal stroke? Mm. Uh, Myth number one would be that you should pull up at nine o'clock or that's the middle of the backside of the stroke, and that that will make your stroke rounder or more efficient. Baloney. (laughs) Uh, Myth number two is that you should scrape the mud off the bottom of your foot at the bottom. And it's not that I'll, this came from Lamont's book, as far as I know. I won't say that pulling back at the bottom of the stroke is a bad thing. In fact, I would say the opposite. That is a desirable trait of a good pedal stroke. However, the scrape the mud analogy is problematic because it implies that your toe should be pointed. And... Uh, to that and drawing into the next one is ankling is a good thing. And in general, there are fitters who would dispute this. Um, Why, explain ankling. For, yeah, for good. So, well, loosely we can define ankling as the more your foot moves during the pedal stroke or moves into dorsiflexion, which is when your toes point up towards your knee or plantar flexion, which is when your toes point down away from your knee. It's articulating. Yeah, yeah. The more Throughout the stroke. Yes. And so ankling, someone who is, quote, ankling is a typical cycling term. Like they don't specify whether they are or not moving with more or more ankle motion, but ankling is known as moving, is allowing the ankle to move more through the pedal stroke. And some people particularly perhaps an older school line of thought is that more ankling is better. Ostensibly, the objective of making good power on the bike is to apply tangential force to the pedal stroke. What does that mean? What's a tangent? Well, if you go back to (laughs) high school geometry, right? Tangential force would mean that you're always applying force on the tangent of the circle, the circle being the nice big circle that the pedal makes as you make one revolution of the crank set. So tangential means it's always perpendicular to the direction of the crank, no matter where the crank arm is on the circle. So for example, if your crank is horizontal or at what I would call three o'clock on the drive side, that would mean your right crank is forward, right? Mm-hmm. I'll use that clock analogy repeatedly just so we have the same yes. same language to speak from. So when your crank's at three o'clock, you'd be pushing straight down. That would be tangential, perpendicular or at a right angle to the crank arm. At six o'clock, when the crank's at the bottom of the stroke, not bottom dead center, but the straight bottom, the geometric bottom, you'd be pulling straight back. At nine o'clock, you'd be pulling straight up. And at 12 o'clock, you'd be pushing straight forward. 
Okay, that's really neat and tidy on paper, but how does that actually work? We're going to take a human being and apply force to a pedal. Pop quiz, Chris, what are humans meant to do physically? What's our primary task? Uh, to survive. And how, what's one of the most core mechanisms to survival mm. physically in terms of movement or motion? Like running? Yeah. yeah, running and walking, right? Exactly. We are bipedal and we have a gait cycle. And why is that important for running for survival? Because you have to walk to water. You have to walk after roaming herds of buffalo. Then you have to run after them to hunt them. You have to walk up to that cute girl, which <laughs> is involved in survival. Yeah. And then when you screw up, you have to run from her, right? So my old joke, all, my, all the people I've fit are laughing right now. Yeah, you told this one before. So, so running and walking are primal. And they're so primal, in fact, that they're, the, the gait cycle is actually rooted into all vertebrates. It's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. You can find some really creepy videos on YouTube that look at the gait cycle of decelibate cats. So this is a cat that's alive. The body's suspended in a harness. And the head's been severed from the body, but the spinal cord's been, been, the spinal cord's been cut, but everything's alive, right? How do they do this? I don't really want to know. It's not cool. But they take yeah. the, the body and they lower it onto a treadmill. And guess what happens? Can still walk. Can still walk. Why does a headless chicken run across the yard? Because it can still run. The gait cycle is hardwired into your spine as a vertebrate. And most of us can remember learning how to ride a bike. Most of us can learn remember learning how to swim, but nobody remembers learning how to run or walk because as soon as you could, you did. It was just a thing that you had an impulse in to you. do. It was in you. So what are, what are running and walking comprised of mostly? Generating downforce, pushing down. And this is not rocket science. We can look at how the body is, without going down a different rabbit hole, either evolved or was manufactured to make downforce. We have all these muscles that are designed to open the hip and open the knee, right? We have very few or less musculature comparatively that can close the knee and close the hip, right? Close the knee, we've got hamstrings. Pull up, yeah. Pull up, right. And to close the hip, we have iliacus and psoas. Psoas is a very long muscle and it's very strong, but it's very thin. And it's also the muscle that joins the, the legs to the torso. And it is the most problematic muscle in the body, according to many people who study these things. So we don't have a lot of ways to generate up force in the pedal stroke. Nine o'clock, pulling up, we've got hamstring, and then as we approach 10, 11, 12, we have iliacus and psoas, right? Now, what's the problem there? There are a couple problems there. One is that people tend to forget when we look at force pedals, uh, graphs of force as it's made in the pedal, unless you're an astronaut or a scuba diver, you tend to forget about this thing called gravity. Mm, gravity. And legs weigh a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm, thank you, gravity, for not letting me be flung helplessly <laughs> into space. I love you. So... <laughs> We legs weigh a lot. Legs, my legs aren't even that really muscular. They're pretty quirky <laughs> and they weigh about 20 kilograms each. So Ooh. that's a lot of weight falling on the pedal, even without generating force. So that means on the upstroke, you've got to lift that leg, mm -hmm. usually with the downforce of the opposite leg. So this is why when you look at force graphs, even when people really try to focus on pulling up and pulling over the top, they barely, if ever, even break even on the amount of force because they have to pull up with enough force to offset the weight of the falling leg in gravity. And then the net is zero or maybe even not zero. You're not putting power into the bike when you're trying to pull up on the pedal. The best you're really looking at is not putting a weight on the pedal that your other foot has to fight against when it's when on the downstroke. But there are lots of problems with this because going back to our gait cycle and how it's hardwired into vertebrates, 
Cycling is a learned activity. And when you focus really hard on doing things like pulling back and up with hamstrings and then activating iliacus or psoas over the top to kick through at 10, 11, and 12 o'clock of a pedal stroke, you're doing something with a really long, highly innervated muscle that was designed for posture and a bits and pieces of running and gait. You're trying to do it with something repetitive and very mechanical in a very mechanical sense. And usually what happens is hemispheric dominance comes into play and you do it really well on one side and horribly on the other. This is really common. So the more contrived you make a pedal stroke and the further from, we'll say air quotes, nature you get, the more likely it is you're gonna fall off the path and make something that's contorted and weird. And awkward, awkward. This is what I see this all the time in my fitting lab because people come in and they're like, I feel so twisted on the saddle. I don't understand why my pelvis is rotated or why I have pelvic shear and I keep going to my therapist and going to my chiropractor and doing all and foam rolling and doing all these things. And they still end up with the same pattern. And it's because they're making force in the same way. And frequently it's because they're punching really hard on one side with it, mm. with the quads and glutes. And then on the other, more often quads than glutes. And the other side, they're yanking hard with the hamstring. And then of course that rotates the pelvis and causes all sorts of problems. And Pelvic obliquity. Yes, exactly. So really common in in cycling universe. Yes. And what I love about it is that most people walk through the door and they think they're a special case. <laughs> and I let them tell their story and then I say, yes, yes get in line. Yep. So cycling is a sport that makes you a horrible athlete, by the way, if you <laughs> hadn't figured that out. It's true. The more you ride your bike and the less you do everything else, the crappy you are at general athletics. This is true. But uh, this, this whole discussion makes me appreciate how cool bikes really are. Totally. Like the act of pedaling, mm -hmm. you just took minutes and minutes and minutes to explain all the stuff that's going on. And the, the fact that we can yeah. use them for all the cool things that we get to do is totally. awesome. Totally. But let's get back to the pedal stroke. You're now. talking to the biggest bike dork in the world. I would, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and claim that. Yep. If I'm world champion at one thing, it's being a bike dork, which is a lofty claim. Yes. Where were we? Tangential force. So now what? whenever you put someone on a bike and you have them make tangential force and you just go pedal especially a relatively novice level cyclist, you get this massive downstroke at three o'clock. Why? Because that's what most closely resembles running or walking. It's a giant smash at three and then more downforce at four, followed by some downforce at five, and then even some downforce at six when they should theoretically be starting to pull back. And maybe even seven if they're really sloppy. And you can see these cyclists from a mile away because whenever someone pedals like that, their shoulders are rocking and their heads bobbing and their torsos rotating and twisting. So, okay, let's take what we're good at. We've got all these muscles that are designed to make downforce. We've got glutes, biggest muscle in the body. We've got quads, hamstrings even make downward force. We've got all the calves, the gastrocs, et cetera, right? Soleus. So we're pushing down on this pedal with this massive force. Let's refine it. Instead of stomping down at three o'clock, start pushing down or really forward and down at 12. Use the entire downstroke. Now, there's some requirements in the world of fitting and this will be an unpopular opinion. Mm, we love those. We love those. Well, I don't love to have them because they're unpopular, but I have them frequently <laughs> and then they end up being unpopular. So anyway, just to clarify the order, but in order to start having, applying force to the pedal at 12 o'clock in a forward and down motion using glutes, quads and glutes, the saddle has to be far enough back behind the bottom bracket. And so when you put a rider into a forward position, what you're doing is extending the dead spot. The dead spot doesn't change because gravity doesn't change. You still have a dead spot at 9, 10, 11, 12. But now because the athlete cannot push forward and down at 12 because you slam their saddle forward, they can't push forward and down until one or two. So you've made the dead spot longer in time. And you've also encouraged them to be quad dominant. 
And what do all app, what, what does every person who walks through the front door of a PT clinic end up with a diagnosis of? Your posterior chain is not firing well enough because you sit too much. So the posterior chain is all those muscles on the backside of your body. The lumbar musculature, the upper back musculature, your neck if you've got forward head posture, your, your glutes and your hamstrings. We're not using those as much as we air quotes should. And I hate the word should, but this is one of the few times I'll use it. We're pushing at 12, we're pushing forward and down. One o'clock, we're pushing forward and down. Two o'clock, we're pushing down and forward. Three o'clock, this is like wind, southwest, south. Three o'clock straight down, four straight down. Let's be realistic, five probably still straight down. Six o'clock or between five and six is bottom dead center. That is the longest point, the point of maximum leg extension from the saddle, which is not at six o'clock. We want you to start pulling back by driving the heel into the heel cup of the shoe. For the record, any shoe that is any good, what it actually does is stabilize your foot in the heel cup of the shoe, not clamp down with a bunch of fancy boas. It drives the foot into the back of the heel cup and prevents it from moving forward. This is critical. And then, and you're driving that heel back into the heel cup of the shoe with a flat or nearly flat foot. If an athlete goes through three o'clock and their foot is level, which is very common, close to zero degrees, and at four o'clock, they're still level. And at five o'clock, they're still level. And then they actually plantar flex or start to ride toe down at bottom dead center. Then I know their saddle is too high. Unpopular opinion number two. Mm. And you can see this when the hamstring lights up like a Christmas tree in the backside of the stroke because they can't drive through and drive the foot into the back of the heel, the heel cup. And this is a beautiful moment in the world of bike fitting because people who live in flat places ride like this all the time and have no freaking idea, no clue. Why? Because flat terrain camouflages dead spots using inertia, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Then they come to Colorado or they go to, go to race the Tour of the Gila and they hit a climb and they go, what happened to me? I'm terrible. <laughs> and they blame it on the altitude, which probably is also to blame. <laughs> right, right. But yes. if your saddle's too high and too far forward, you will not be able to start applying force at 12 o'clock down force, nor will you be able to drive back at the bottom of the stroke at six o'clock with the heel and you're left to a mashing pedal stroke from about two to four that's all quad dominant on the front side and then at the back side you end up yanking up hard which flicks your heel up by the way which then sets you up in a poor position to apply force across the top at 12 because if the toe is pointed you can't drive with the glute mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right how do you snap the bar up in a squat or a deadlift you drive the heels into the floor the position of your foot influences recruitment chain patterns up the chain. So when you're toe down, you can't activate glute. It's impossible. It just doesn't work. So there's a rule in strength and conditioning, which Jess has quoted, Jess Elliott, one of your other podcast guests, and a brilliant strength and conditioning coach. She has said, and I think she's quoting Cal Dietz, who wrote a really cool strength and conditioning book that I won't waste time trying to remember right now, which is joint angles dictate muscle function. She says something like that yeah. all the time. All the time. Yeah. Yes. I like to take what she quoted and mo modify it slightly and, tell it and change it to joint angles indicate muscle function. Because, of course, the angle doesn't dictate the muscle function. It tells us what muscles are firing and what aren't. And this is a beautiful law because I can look at, a, on, at someone riding a bike and tell how they're making power just based off the angles between their knee and their ankle and their hip. I can see it because there are certain rules, there are certain angles that a, a muscle cannot apply force to a joint with. You just, once you understand how the muscle works, it's pretty simple. Not to reduce the body to a system of pulleys and levers only. There's far more that goes into it than that. But on a very mechanical level, there is some truth to that. 
So when an athlete's toe down to the bottom of the stroke, I know they're not driving through into the heel cup of the shoe with strong hamstrings. When you go to the gym and you do hamstring curls on the hamstring curl machine, you don't do them with pointed toes. You, you do them with a dorsiflexed foot or a foot that's slightly, close to, yeah, yeah, yeah slightly, yeah. right? So pretty basic. So that plays into, so what I'm saying in the big picture is in order to have proper pedaling technique, you have to have your bike set up correctly. You can have great technique, but if your bike's a disaster, you're only going to get so far. And going in there, then there are anatomical differences like short femurs that might affect this or of course, certain things like that. Yep. Right. But you can figure all that out in the fit lab pretty easily. Mm -hmm. It's really not rocket science and you don't need a bunch of crazy gizmos because we can look at joint angles and you can just palpate. You can just poke the rider in the glute with permission or the quad. (laughs) Yes. Permission being key. So yeah. So you, you hold the brake and you put the pedal in a certain stroke and then you have them push on the pedal. And then it's really easy to figure out which muscle's firing and which one isn't, which one is jello and which one is hard as a rock. Mm-hmm. So then you know which muscles are firing at a certain point. And that's very illustrative to a rider because it can help them figure out like, oh yeah, I guess I am applying power in this, in this moment. And then all you need is an iPad with a slow-mo video and you can watch how they pedal and how they make force, discuss the joint angles. And this is maybe related definitely, but slightly off topic, but this is why when I fit a rider, I never just make changes to their bike and shove them out the door. Because if someone's been riding with a saddle at a certain height and I lower it 28 millimeters and slam it back 21 millimeters, which is not uncommon, but I don't instruct them on how to make force Mm. or why I want them to make force this way, they're going to get on their bike and be like, this feels terrible. And then they're going to make it four days before they break out an Allen wrench and undo everything I did. And then we've wasted a bunch of time and money. Now, that's why I have a money back guarantee on my fits because I want the client to get something out of it. I don't want them to run off and change everything back. That doesn't solve any problems. Right, right. But it's also why in bike fitting, I have to be instructive with my client and explain what the technique to pedaling is. How do we maximize those techniques? By going to the extremes of cadence. 10 minute zone three tempos at 110 RPM. Eight minute low cadence, non-maximal efforts at high force. 40 RPM, 40, 50 RPM 50 depends RPM. on the athlete. And you yeah. have to cue them very carefully on what to look for. Mm-hmm. You have to make sure you, they're using the right technique. They're bracing a little bit. They're not letting the knees collapse in their towards the top tube. If you mm-hmm. send someone out the door, who's got really sloppy mechanics, right. And you give them that drill, they give themselves tendonitis in one ride. Yeah. Disaster. Right. So you, these are really important. The high cadence ones, the beauty of those is other than keep your head still, you don't have to give them a lot of cues because in order for them to pedal that fast under these are typically prescribed in, you know, tempo power for me. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot they can do wrong. <laughs> All they can right. do is just flail around until they get, they learn to pedal more quickly and with a supple muscle. Mm-hmm. And that's an art that I think is lost. And in particular goes down the tubes when people spend all winter on Zwift doing races locked and not, in. yeah, locked in. And they just pick the gear that they want to use. And that ends up being 89 RPM a lot of the time. So we got to work some extremes of cadence on either end, some force and some speed because what is power made of? It's how hard you push, which mm-hmm. is force, which in a circle is called torque, times your speed, which is how quickly you pedal, which on a bike is called cadence. That's what makes it power. Trainer is a great time to be playing with cadence. Yes. It's hard to do outside. Or even better, there are these things, they're called rollers. Oh, yeah. mm. One of the best training tools ever made, super old school. I've taught many of my clients to learn how to ride rollers and they've gotten better in the Peloton. Actually, we could have brought this up during our conversation about Riders who have trouble riding in the group, if you're, you learn how to ride rollers, you become more stable on the bike. Yep. Your handling skills become more responsive. You become more intuitive about how subtle changes right. in your bar position or your weight distribution influence the handling of the bike. So rollers can be a lot of tools to help riders sharpen their group ride skills when they don't have access to a group ride. 
We also caught up with reigning U.S. National Road Race Champion Ruth Winder of Trek Segafredo for more on how to train the pedal stroke on and off the bike. I do a lot in the winter. I do a lot of low cadence intervals in the winter, and I have to really be mindful of where I'm putting the pressure and pulling up and everything like that, and especially my knees. Uh, my right knee especially likes to collapse in quite a lot, so then I try and be really mindful of keeping that straight. So what are you focusing on during that pedal stroke? I try and focus a lot on my on my recovery, on my backstroke when I'm pulling up with my hamstring because I tend to be a little lazy there. I'm just much more quad dominant, which most of us are, I think. So being really mindful of pulling up with my hamstring and really locking in my core and like making sure my core is strong. And I try and think like while I'm doing these low cadence intervals, like if someone came and tried to like push me off my bike that I wouldn't be able to be pushed off because everything is so solid from my core down through my glutes and my hamstrings. Do you do anything off the bike to supplement with my pedal stroke specifically um i do single leg squats to help with my knee tracking um in that respect like i try and help with that because i have a little bit of lower back pain and so i think that because of my right knee collapsing all the time like it's kind of pulling all the way up my my back so i do single leg squats to help with that that was another episode of fast talk as always we love your feedback Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or call us at 719-800-2112. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is at RealFastLabs. For Colby Pierce, Ruth Winder, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.